everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Entrepreneur Rx. I've got the great pleasure of introducing Eric Kuhlstad, who was a few years behind me in residency and was one of the Christ Hospital EM rock stars that came out of that program, of which I'm not included on the rock star piece of it, but I've been hearing about Eric for years. So this was really cool uh, that we got to chat. Eric, how are you? Great, John. Thanks. Uh, honored to be here and uh, pleasure to be, uh, to be interviewed. All right. So I always make this joke. I've never met a dumb chemical engineer. Like if you wanted, like I was a sociology major, if you wanted to kill yourself in college, chemical engineering or electrical engineering was the way to do it. Like what the hell, what possessed you to do that? Oh, you know, it was uh, kind of a fluke. I had uh, started off, you know, not doing well in high school, um, maybe having a little too much fun in, in high school, not academically, and um, ended up leaving to go become an auto mechanic and um, thinking that was the easier life, you know, than going to college. And uh, it's a tough job. And um, you're not paid enough for the frustrations that you, that you endure. And um, that was the, the trigger for me to think about going to higher education and um, initially thinking that uh, mechanical engineering was the logical choice since, um, you know, auto mechanics kind of led that way. And um, somehow chemical engineering seemed more interesting once I started getting into the chemistry parts of the uh, program for mechanical engineering. And um, that's, that's how I ended up there. So not, not intentional in, in any way. The, um, it's funny, I had a similar experience working in a factory. Um, uh, it was like, you know, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And I looked at all these poor guys who were 5, 10, 30 years old. I mean, I'm like, they're working awfully hard. There's got to be a better way to do this. But um, how long were you an auto mechanic for between high school and college? A uh, little under two years. I mean, I did a couple things in, in that time frame that led to the auto mechanic position. And you know, within within two years, I'd made a decision that uh, auto mechanics was, uh, you, you got paid insufficiently for things that are trying to fix things that always broke. <laughs> wow. That's, that's interesting. Okay. So you did, went to college. Why emergency medicine? I always like asking this question, see why other people found their way to the same specialty I did. When I, you know, after, after being a chemical engineer for a while, going to grad school, you know, getting a master's and then getting recruited out to do uh, biomedical engineering. It was more biochemical engineering at the time. And, uh, the, you know, back in the 90s, this is when there were a lot of, you know, biotech startups um, and most of them not doing well. A few stellar successes that, that drove everybody to that, uh, to that area. But um, when I decided that medicine looked maybe more appealing and more stable than the startup life of uh, engineering and, and you know, bioengineering in the 90s. The first thing I did was take EMT classes. As no one in my family had gone to medical school, I didn't know any physicians personally, and uh, it was a little bit of a foreign concept for me. So, so I thought, well, let me at least uh, dip my toe in the water, see if I liked doing things with patients. And um, so by, by taking the EMT classes, I mean, one of the first things you do in these classes is you know, go shadow or ride along with the real clinicians and uh, EMTs and paramedics. And, you know, my first day doing that, I thought, this is so cool. I would do this for free. <laughs> I said, I, I, most days I do it for free. Some days you're going to pay me enough to do it. Right. Very yeah. cool. Back in the early days, yeah, I didn't, hadn't yet seen the, the frustration. So, yeah. Um, Christ yeah. was such a good place to train because it was such a knife and gun club. Yep. 
the um all right so when did you get the idea to do that i mean you have you have this kind of entrepreneurial background in the sense with your engineering degrees when did you get the sense to do this tell us about your company the esophageal monitoring it was so early in the days of cooling people for cardiac arrest when we started adopting that you know that that approach um you know this is sort of 2005-ish era when AHA put up the guideline recommendation for post-arrest cooling. We were using whatever was available at the time, and a lot of it was was technically difficult to use, you know, somewhat complex to set up uh, and rather expensive. And so my first thought was that, hey, this, and we published some of our, our outcomes data you know, after adopting cooling and it, and it looked pretty good, you know, notwithstanding some of the recent trials that have, you know, questioned the, the benefits, but at the time, you know, the, the difference before and after was large. And it just struck me that if this is a fairly simple technology or set, simple idea to cool people after cardiac arrest, uh, yet it's hard for us as a tertiary care level one trauma center to get the, the treatment implemented, you know, how, how bad is that for typical community, small hospitals and where all the opportunity to save lives is, is going to be lost. And so I thought I was old enough to have been a med student when we were did, we did gastric lavage for GI bleeding. And yeah. um, so I remembered seeing people get really cold uh, as we were doing that and thought there must be something available to leverage that concept, use the heat transfer environment of the, of the GI tract uh, for therapeutic purposes. And um, initially thought somebody must already have that product on the market. You know, somebody else must have designed this, produced it. It's, it's, a, it's a device available somewhere. And uh, for, the more I looked, I, the less I uh, could see that you know anything had been done in this realm. And um, so that was the sort of the, the germ of the idea uh, that, that this is something that it makes sense clinically. It's it's not that much different than what we used to do for a different purpose with gastric lavage for GI bleeding, and yet there's nothing available. And um, and so so that that started the whole process. Wow. And then so okay, so that you have the idea, you research it. Think you know I've done this before. Someone else had to think of this. No one thinks about it. Then did you go through this like, oh my God, do I really want to do this sort of phase or should I just tell somebody else about it? Yeah, it was really incremental. And so in a sense, accidental because I had a friend in the neighborhood who was an IP attorney. At the time, I, I didn't even know the difference between a litigator and a prosecutor, uh, but I, I just knew he was an IP attorney. And um, and so, uh, and as all good IP attorneys, you know, he would probably have to triage 90% of the folks who came to him with these yeah. great ideas. Right? So, so he did the same with me. I think the first time I asked him that, Hey, I, Rick, I've got this great idea. I said, um, well, you know, go back and, and look for prior art. And, and this is when, when Google patents had, had recently come out, you know, fairly widespread and available and cataloged pretty much everything that USPTO had listed. So it wasn't as hard to do a search as it, as it would have been going to the library and microfilming and so forth. But, but, what I did was then was take his advice and, you know, went and, you know, looked to see what else was out there, what, what had been done, what had been patented, you know, knowing that nothing had been uh, commercialized at that point. And uh, as I went back to him sort of iteratively with what I'd find, you know, he realized, okay, you actually do have something here. <laughs> this, is, this is worth uh, pursuing. I think at the time the thought was, you file some IP and license it out and go back to your regular day job. And um, we always operated with that sort of 
idea that, hey, we just sort of file something, get something issued, and, and then you can license it. And um, they thought, oh, a couple of years, we'll be, we'll be done. And that was, you know, in 2009. So obviously, it's taken longer. And we, we, we took a different path than, you know, just, just exiting, um, to, you know, would be a licensing deal. Wow. So, okay. So was that, be, did you not go out and shop it to, to be licensed or did you just say, I'm going to build this myself and sell it myself? We, we actually did. We had some, we had acquirers um, that were interested and, and um, at one point got close to, you know, even talking term sheet structure. And at each point that something, you know, looked real when, when the, when the numbers came out and we saw, what the potential could be and what we thought we could be uh, capable of, of pursuing and, and completing in milestones, it never made sense to, to take the early option. Interesting. So this, the, so the device is, go, go ahead and explain the device. I mean, I've obviously researched this, but go ahead and explain the device. It's, it, basically, it's a, it's a multi-chamber medical-grade silicone tube that looks like an orogastric tube, but with multiple chambers that have connectors to connect to an external heat exchanger. And so instead of placing the standard uh, NG tube or OG tube uh, that most patients would get, um, you know, after they're intubated for, you know, post-resuscitation and so forth, the, our device maintains the functionality of the orogastric tube. So it has a central lumen for gastric suctioning and decompression, but then it has these additional uh, channels that allow circulation of water in a closed loop circuit so no water actually leaves the device right by changing the temperature of the water you affect a heat transfer uh, between the device and the patient and so you can cool or warm uh, patients as needed for you know the various therapeutic indications that you would want to pursue a temperature change of a patient how quickly does it work so for example you're you know post-resuscitation you want to cool a person down to 32 uh, it, yeah, it used to be 33 as, as the target. And, um, you know, the, a lot of the rate of change depends on patient habitus and, and other environmental factors. But, you know, you can get to goal temperature within a few hours, uh, typically. So on par with any other approach out there in terms of surface devices, intravascular devices, and so forth. And so the, the interesting thing is that, you know, that was the original focus. That was my interest, you know, clinically, the unmet need was, was for uh, inducing hypothermia in patients, maybe secondarily warming patients after accidental hypothermia, but it was all about whole body temperature management. And, and what's really happened now, just in the last few years, is that electrophysiologists started using our device independently, a, a handful of them across the, the globe. In the, in the UK and Germany and Illinois, started using the device in the EP lab for protection of the esophagus. In other words, they were actually intentionally cooling the esophagus to prevent the thermal injury that occurs fairly frequently with left atrial ablation for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. And you know, it's funny that uh, ablation for AFib. You know, when when I started med school in '97. You know, that was when the first paper came out proposing that it could be done. The conventional wisdom was that you couldn't ablate AFib because it was too chaotic a pattern. Yeah. There weren't individual tracts that you could identify like Wolf Parkinson White and so forth um, that you could ablate and, and cure the arrhythmia. And um, so in, in the late 90s, that all that changed. And now here we are in 2022, and it's a procedure that 
procedure now that's done something like 300,000 times a year in the US and another couple hundred thousand times or more in, in the EU and uh, growing it, you know, 10 to 15% a year because of the rates of AFib um, that, are, that are just continually increasing. And, um, and so the, the procedure itself has a decent efficacy, but the risk of the procedure, the biggest risk or the most life-threatening risk is uh, something called atrioesophageal fistula, where a thermal injury from burning on the posterior wall of the left atrium goes through the left atrium into the esophagus that thermal injury then progresses over weeks, anywhere from you know two to twelve weeks, uh, for the fistula to actually develop. And once that fistula forms, the mortality rate is on the order of eighty percent. So there aren't any great ways to prevent this condition. People do things like adjusting the power as they ablate on the posterior wall. They'll use temperature sensors to monitor when temperature rises. But of course, that's a lagging indicator that tells you when you've already caused thermal insult across the esophagus. Yeah. And um, so cooling, um, a lot of folks thought, hey, cooling might, might be an interesting way to uh, address this risk. And with our device being out available on the market already, you know, FDA cleared for temperature, uh, for patient temperature management um, with the physicians in electrophysiology starting to use it, you know, as soon as we heard about it, we, of course, you know, went in and started asking questions. And um, as we as we learned more and uh, did some studies on this effect, uh, it turned out to be vastly more effective than anything else available on the market. Wow. And, um, it seems like it be- changed everything. Yeah, it seems like it should be the standard of care. I mean, if you have this device, why wouldn't you use it? Yeah, it's becoming, I mean, medicine, as you know, changes a little slowly sometimes. Yeah. um, We've got a few things happening simultaneously. We're pursuing specific indications for esophageal protection, um, you know, to to expand, you know, the current uh, indications that that are broadly just temperature management. We have a lot of viral spread, word of mouth. Uh, use and and that's you know uh, that's causing us to have to sort of you know address these um, and uh, and uh, you know learn everything that we can and collect all the data that, that's available to quantify what sort of effects we're having not just on the safety of the procedure but also on the procedure itself because now that now that we've had you know a few years worth of use, we've been able to go back and look at things like procedure duration, long-term efficacy, and we're finding some really interesting things from, from you know, a large number of sites now. You know, over a thousand patients, um, you know, looked at just with long-term follow-up or efficacy of the procedure. Now we're getting close to 10,000 uses to get all together in electrophysiology and, um, and still without uh, a fistula you know, at least yet known to anyone that's, uh, that's been using the device. So with that puts us in a realm of a safety benefit far better than we could have expected, um, you know, based on the, the, uh, the typical rates of fistula formation. And we're seeing shorter procedure times. And on top of that, we're seeing better efficacy in the procedure at one year follow-up. And the, the tracks actually for, you know, from three months onwards. And all that is presumed to be due to the fact that with active cooling, you can ablate in a much more effective pattern and you can just keep the lesion spots 
consistent and contiguous without having to go back and forth and, and resulting in partially transmural lesions. Yeah. You, can, you can just consistently go through. And so we're seeing on the order of double digit improvements in long-term efficacy at one year. So, so combined, you know, it's, it, that's better than we could have ever expected. That's amazing. What, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who want to go down the device road? Because the, the, the device road is hard. You have FDA clearance, you have all sorts of testing. Um, it probably took you a few years off your life. What advice do you have for them? You know, I think one of the first things to do is get connected to your local incubator organization. Most cities of decent size have one. And if you don't have one, your city is probably one nearby. In, in Chicago, we had uh, a group called Propel, and their, their whole focus was to take you know, clinicians, for the most part, with ideas, walk them through the process. Now, they weren't, they weren't holding their hand. I mean, they were really sort of saying, hey, here's what you need to do. Here are the people to connect with. Here are the things you need to do next. Here are the typical milestones you need to uh, meet. So with that, I mean, that, that provided the education that I needed that, was, that would have otherwise you know, never been clear to my, I mean, your medical education really doesn't offer anything in this, in this realm. Um, you know, you might, I have an idea that it's difficult, um, but, but no one actually says, Hey, here's how you do it specifically. And um, so there's an awful lot of reliance on others expertise, but there are a lot of folks that are actively engaged in trying to foster the entrepreneurial uh, knowledge and mindset of clinicians, uh, knowing that most clinicians have ideas. I mean, it's rare, you know, how, there's no clinician that hasn't said at some point, hey, it would be interesting if we did this instead of that, you know, or why hasn't someone done, you know, this approach instead of Yeah, totally. I just set up a um, venture capital firm to help physicians bring these ideas to, to bear because, as you said, we all have, them, you know, all of us have them. Some of them are great. Some of them, like most of mine, are were ridiculous. But, but we all have different ways to try to improve the quality of delivery of the health of the healthcare. And, uh, and you certainly have achieved it. That's excellent. Congratulations. That's really cool. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, it's been, like I said, it's, it's been, yeah, I think anybody could do it if you're willing to, um, you know, sacrifice the time yeah. commitment. Um, that great, that, you know, yeah. That's the biggest thing is, is time commitment, right? Did, did you, now you're still practicing emergency medicine, correct? Yes. Yes. Wow. Interesting. Well, you've uh, you've done the dual path. Let me ask you a question about burnout. So we talk about moral injury and burnout. And, you know, for me, my premise has always been because I try to do these different things, I, I've been pretty unsusceptible to burnout. And I don't work a ton of shifts anymore, maybe eight or 10 a month, but I've never really felt burned out. But I think it's because of this entrepreneurial stuff. How about you? I Yeah, I think having the different areas of interest helps protect against burnout. If you, you said you're doing eight to 10 shifts a month. Yeah, probably, probably eight right now. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, right. Cause I'm part-time clinically. So I'm, I'm probably doing half that, which is almost perfect for me. I think it just in terms of protection against burnout, I see colleagues that that are doing full-time and plus, and, you know, having to pay extra, you know, car payments, mortgage payments, or college tuitions, and, and actually doing more shifts and, you know, to, to make the extra money. Yeah. And um, they, you can do that for a little while, but it, uh, it's hard, I think, in this environment, um, you know, with, you know, notwithstanding all the, all the, the additional stressors over the last couple of years, um, it's, uh, you know, that I think for me, the secret is having the, the different interests and the different focuses and, 
you know, going into a shift is almost like a, a relief to me that now I can sort of focus on patients and, and not have the distraction of, of everything else. Um, and then, you know, a couple of rough overnights and I'm sort of happy to look forward to, you know, having a, having a conversation with a, with a potential, you know, end user, uh, looking at some data, you know, writing a manuscript. I mean, it's, it's just, it's all nice to have that balance. And, yeah, the diversity of it. And you're right. I look, you know, I, to the point where I look forward to my going and see patients because it's a, it is a different thing that I usually do. So I'm excited to do it still. Um, that's cool. Hey, th this has been awesome, Eric. Congratulations. Where can people find out more about you or contact you? You know, all the usual mechanisms, I think, Twitter, LinkedIn, the company is Attune Medical. So, you know, just a, a search on Attune Medical uh, will, I think, put our site up fairly quickly. The actual HTML uh, webpage is attune-medical.com. Uh, but there's also, because the name of the device is Enzo ETM, Enzo spelled with an S, so E-N-S-O, and then ETM, ETM being esophageal temperature management. Uh, Enzo being a name that uh, one of our marketing folks came up with that uh, that fits sort of the bill of, of what uh, apparently what a good marketing name uh, should be. And um, so EnzoETM.com also will pop up uh, that the website. That's very cool. Well, congratulations. We'll have all this in our show notes, uh, ways to contact you and also links to the device. Eric, thank you very much. Good to finally reconnect after all these years. Uh, it's been an honor. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. And uh, yeah, fun following your footsteps here. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.